2: Well, Molly, if I only had the time and the cash, I'd take a round-the-world cruise. How
1: long would it take, and where would you go?
2: Well, well, let's see. I mean, if you started here in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and you went to the Barbados, and then Brazil, Buenos Aires, around Cape Horn, through the Straits of Magellan, into the Pacific. And, well, that's typically a 110, 115-day itinerary. That's a lot of time. What if you flew? How long would it take, then? Well, let's see. Uh, maybe 550 miles per hour on average. Allow an hour for refueling somewhere. And assume you fly in a great circle route. So to circumnavigate the globe would take you uh, two days. Quick trip, relatively speaking. Our planet's pretty small.
1: But you don't think of the planet as being very small. But I suppose it is when you compare it to, say, Jupiter.
2: Yep. Jupiter's the behemoth of the solar system. It would take you uh, three weeks to circumnavigate Jupiter in a jetliner. You have to scale up when you think of most of the objects in our universe.
1: I guess you'd want to have a really good movie on board if you're going for three weeks.
2: Yeah, maybe 2010.
1: So the universe is, I don't know, what's the word to describe the universe and its size? Big. It's really, really big.
2: As the writer Douglas Adams said, it's hard to get your mind around it. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm
1: Molly Bentley. And big is the subject here on Are We Alone? Well, Seth, the biggest objects in the universe are galaxies, I assume.
2: Yep. Those are the biggest single objects, galaxies, which are just giant neighborhoods for stars. A typical galaxy will contain a couple of hundred billion
1: stars. I know this is kind of a crazy question, but why do the stars actually confine themselves to galaxies? I mean, why can't we have a universe in which there were just stars everywhere and not just in these galactic clumps? No, it's not a crazy idea, Molly. One of
2: the big questions in astronomy is how and why galaxies form. And after all, the Big Bang didn't make galaxies, didn't even make stars, just a lot of hot gas.
1: Ah, so it's a big mystery how galaxies are born.
3: Well, galaxies are the basic building blocks of the universe at large, and we would certainly like to know how they come about, how the structure in the universe forms and evolves, and where we come from.
1: George Jorogovsky is an astronomer at Caltech. He studies how galaxies are born.
2: Now, galaxy formation can't be too hard. I mean, it's been underway since the very earliest years of the universe.
1: When everything was a hot gas plasma.
3: Yeah, but the gas wasn't perfectly smooth. It had lumps. In the early universe, there were little non-uniform fluctuations in density. And those are the things that we see in those beautiful pictures of the cosmic microwave background that are taken with satellites.
2: Oh, the cosmic microwave background is the leftover radio glow from the Big Bang. The universe was filled with light, but remember, not evenly
3: filled. For our purpose, the important thing is that some spots are denser than the others.
1: Enter gravity.
3: Pull, pull, pull. If you want to become a galaxy, it pays to be dense. That's a
1: great straight line, Seth.
3: So the denser spots attract other pieces that fall in and merge together. Now most of the mass is in form of dark matter.
1: Dark matter. We still don't know what it is.
3: And the normal matter that we know about.
1: Originally just atoms of hydrogen and helium.
3: Falls together wherever the dark matter tells it to go.
2: Normal matter follows dark
3: matter, like
2: dolphins following sardines.
1: What?
3: It all comes together, swimmingly. This is when the first stars ignite. This is what we would consider the birth of first galaxies. And now we think that that happened just a few hundred million years after the Big Bang.
2: And galaxies are not immune to the ravages of time. Like my neighbors, and also fine wine, they age. They also, like my neighbors but not like fine wine, get larger.
3: In time, galaxies inevitably grow larger because the merging continues from smaller pieces to ever larger. And at the same time, stars in them age. So stars are born, they evolve, and they have no means of continuing their nuclear reactions. They can fade out or explode, and new stars are born. So eventually, you can run out of gas, the fuel of star formation. And at that point, galaxies slowly fade away, get dimmer and redder in color. That is also like my neighbors come to think of it.
2: What? Well, dimmer and redder, then dimmer and dimmer. But why redder? What, my neighbors? Well, it's a combination of sun and drink. No, the galaxies. Oh, because the stars run out of fuel, they put out less energy. The cooler an object is, the redder it looks. And Even that dull
3: red glow of stars will eventually die out. That's exactly what's going to happen many billions of years from now. Galaxies will slowly fade away as far as the visible light is concerned.
2: Now,
1: before they do that,
3: many galaxies...
1: Like Fortune 500 companies...
2: Merge with one another. And when they do, there's a major central character that's going along for the ride. The black hole. Make that plural, Molly. George has a theory about
3: double black holes...
2: Quite rare.
3: Well, maybe not so rare after all. We found out recently that essentially every big galaxy, including our own, has a gigantic black hole in its middle. And two plus two equals? So as galaxies merge, their black holes should merge too. Now that would be a very spectacular thing to see. So two
1: galaxies collide, Seth, then their black holes become one black hole?
3: Yes, that's what he thinks
2: happens. The problem is that black holes are black, so they're hard to see. You have to observe the
1: stuff that falls into them.
2: Right. And we can observe black holes in galaxies that are tens of thousands of light years apart as they come together. But the merging galaxies... If our understanding is
1: correct... They also have to have black holes, but they're hard to see.
2: Right. So if only there were some way to see these black holes merging. A trick.
3: So the trick to use was to use so-called adaptive optics, which is a technology now used in large telescopes which essentially untwinkles the stars.
2: That means that the images that the telescopes make get sharper. They can correct for the blurry atmosphere.
1: So George and his team looked at galaxies using adaptive
3: optics. And lo and behold, in about one-third of those that we surveyed, we found that there are indeed closed pairs of active black holes on their path to merger.
2: If only there were initial public offerings for those massive mergers.
3: So those two galaxies become
1: one, and two black holes become one black hole. It's a happy ending.
2: Well yes, and studying black holes isn't like studying other objects, because the gravity near a black hole is so incredibly intense, it actually warps space. Warps space? Warps space. And if we're going to understand nature's deepest and biggest secrets, we really have to study these extreme, unusual objects.
1: It's a great story. Seth, didn't you forget something?
2: Oh, right. George Jorgovsky, thank you so much for being with us today. My
1: pleasure. George Jagowski is professor of astronomy at the California Institute of Technology. You know, Seth, George talked about giant clumps of dark matter being the forerunners of galaxies, that wherever you have a lot of this dark matter, its gravity pulls in the ordinary gas and dust and it turns it into stars and galaxies. But dark matter, like dark energy, is still a big question mark. So, isn't George kind of replacing one mystery, which is how galaxies form, with another? which is, what is dark matter?
2: Well, Molly, we, we know that dark matter exists. At least we're pretty certain that it does. And we also know that it exerts a gravitational pull. So... Even though we don't really know what dark matter is, we do know how it behaves. And so we can gauge its importance
1: in shaping the cosmos. And the cosmos could be how Sandra Faber would narrow down her interests. The Chair of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of California, Santa Cruz, in 2011, Sandra Faber was presented with the highest award given by the American Astronomical Society, the Henry Norris Russell Lectureship. This for her pioneering research into the evolution of galaxies and insight into concepts such as cold, dark matter.
2: And for anyone who has gazed at an image taken by the Hubble Space Telescope, well, you have Sandy to thank in part for the feeling of wonder that it inspires. She was key to diagnosing Hubble's vision problems shortly after the telescope was launched. And even though she's been an astronomer for nearly four decades she hasn't lost her sense of wonder about the universe, as she told Molly from her digs at the Center for Adaptive Optics.
1: Sandy, this is a question that many astronomers get, but it never fails to fascinate the public. As an astronomer, can you pinpoint your interest in astronomy to a specific
4: moment? Do you have that epiphany moment in your childhood? Well, I was always interested in astronomy as a kid, and what I remember from being very young, like five years old, is going out in Cleveland, Ohio, into the suburban backyard and lying down on the grass in a summer night and just looking up at the stars and wondering. But if I could think of the moment where I just sort of bonded with with astronomy, it was walking into the telescope dome at Swarthmore College when I was visiting, seeing a 24-inch refractor, which looked huge to me at the time, and just thinking, this is a magnificent piece of equipment. Wow, I want to use this. (laughs) So it was the equipment that got you excited. It wasn't looking out at
1: the stars, although that was also appealing.
4: No, I'm really, my father was a civil engineer. I have a lot of engineering techie stuff in, in my genome.
1: What were some of the big questions that really got to you? And it wasn't just how the big equipment was made and how to operate it, but what were the big questions when you thought about the universe?
4: I wanted to know where the universe came from and why it is the way it is. Can I tell you a little story? Please. So all of these colleges ask you to write essays when you apply, and Swarthmore asked an essay question, what will you do with a Swarthmore education? And I said, well, I want to know where the universe comes from and I'm not quite sure how I should go about studying that. Perhaps you should study the universe in the large, in which case I'd be interested in galaxies and stars and I'd probably be an astronomer. But maybe the key to understanding the universe is to understand it microscopically with the laws of its constituents and how all of its little particles behave and interact. And I said, in which case I'll be a chemistry major. Because atoms were the smallest particles that I knew about at the time. Why did you say chemistry major and not quantum physicist? Because I didn't know the words quantum physics. Mm. I just didn't know this. I was, my high school didn't teach me anything like that. And I had not had the wits to read on my own. Little did I realize, I didn't know until later, that this theme of blending understanding in the very large with understanding in the very small has been the whole essence of modern cosmology. And it has been a true marriage between particle physics and astronomers. And we're understanding that getting particles like dark matter or some substrate phenomenon like dark energy, this is what the universe is all about. When you were asking these big questions, where did the universe come from? What was the understanding at that time in the 70s? Has it changed much? The understanding has changed greatly. When I went to Swarthmore... In 1962 we had not even discovered the cosmic microwave background radiation so there was talk of a Big Bang but there was no proof that there was actually a Big Bang Mm -hmm. so since then if I could tick off these things okay we've discovered the Big Bang we've discovered ripples in the microwave radiation which are the gravitational seeds of galaxies we know that there were these ripples that were created, their gravity drew in matter to build the galaxies that we see today. And we even believe, this is very speculative, but I think cosmologists are convinced, that these ripples came from a period of time just after the Big Bang called inflation, during which the universe literally expanded faster than the speed of light. This is Alan Guth's theory. That's correct. That's right. So back in 1962, I think people would not have believed that the universe could actually expand faster than the speed of light. We're all taught that nothing can go faster than light, but actually an expanding universe can. And it's during those phases in cosmology that are the most creative. This is when you actually create new matter and energy. And as we now know it, we also create structure or the seeds of structure.
1: Now, when you were starting out in astronomy, did you have role models? Did you have role models that you could follow, or were you sort of forging a path
4: for yourself, by yourself? When I was studying science and so on, I didn't know any scientists at all. The only scientists I knew were in books. They were all men. Worse than that, not only were they all men, they were famous. They were titans, you know, they were pillars of intellect, Einstein, Hubble. I mean, how could one possibly pretend to enter a field which, in which most of the discoveries have been made by people like that? So I think most of the discouragement that I experienced didn't come from being a woman outsider. It came from being feeling mortal. <laughs> what, what do you mean? Well, that is to say, ordinary, just you know, a regular person. I didn't really know that you didn't have to be Superman in order to be a good scientist. Or Superwoman.
2: Conserve your cosmic strength. We'll return to astronomer Sandy Faber in a moment. Later, experience the biggest explosion since the one that started it all. We're thinking big, really big, on Are We Alone?
0: Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: We return to astronomer Sandra Faber. Molly asked about Sandy's role in ensuring the success of the most famous piece of scientific hardware ever to be put into orbit.
1: Now we're talking about Hubble. Yes one of the great, great success stories of astronomy and you were instrumental in giving Hubble a new pair of eyes, or better, corrective lenses. Can you tell that story of how you fixed this very famous instrument, which is your interest, the instrument?
4: Well, I I think it might be a little more correct to say that that we diagnosed what was wrong with Hubble and other people gave it the corrective lenses. Yeah, it was a great detective story. The telescope was launched, this was April of 1990, and it wasn't working. And there was an incredible plan laid out to check it out, and nothing worked, you know. At one point, you were supposed to aim it at a star, and it was supposed to stay aimed, and you were supposed to see data of a certain sort. Nothing looked like that. And we began to suspect that something was wrong with the telescope called spherical aberration.
1: Is there an analogy for those of us who wear corrective lenses, which I do, I have contacts in at the moment,
4: is there any analogy to human eyesight? Sort of. Spherical aberration is not usually an aberration that we correct for. What we're correcting for in our glasses is a focus aberration. This is a, the next higher order thing, and here's how I would describe. Imagine that your eye could take part of the light and focus it perfectly, and another part of the light and focus it very badly. So what would you see? You would see a point source surrounded by a halo, and that's what the Hubble images actually looked at. And there was was no position of the secondary mirror that could get all the light to focus at the same time. Well, we know that then the corrections were made, and then we have these brilliant images
1: that have come back from Hubble. Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite image? And it might not even be one that the public has
4: seen. Well, the most memorable one for me is the one that's called the Pillars of Creation. And that, when it was first taken, it appeared on the front pages of all the papers and so on. It is the iconic Hubble image. And it's three dark clouds, pillars, and they're illuminated by ionizing radiation from very hot stars and It's a stellar nursery. Young stars are forming inside these clouds. I understand that you had a profound
1: experience when you were in Chile. Mm. I wonder if you could tell that story.
4: Right. Okay. So um, it's well known that the southern sky is much more beautiful than the northern sky. And the main reason is that the center of the galaxy is visible overhead. We can see it here from the north in the summertime, but it's sort of low over the horizon, and there's a long slant path through the atmosphere, so it looks kind of dim. What does that mean, a slant path? Slant path. So, you know, when you see things near the horizon or just above the horizon, Mm -hmm. then the light has to go through a lot of air and possibly dust and so on, so there's a lot of dimming that occurs. It's much better, if you can, to look at a celestial object right overhead, straight up. So that's how it is with the Galactic Center when you go down to the Southern Hemisphere like Chile. So for years I didn't go to Chile because it's a long trip and I had two kids and I didn't want to take the time traveling. But finally they were old enough and I could go. I think this was around about 1988 or so. So everybody knew that Sandy Faber had never been to the Southern Hemisphere and they were going to put on a nice show for me. So we waited until almost before dawn, but it was still dark. So the galaxy, the center was rising before dawn, and I was given instructions, please go out onto the catwalk looking towards the east where the galaxy should be visible. And so I dutifully followed all the instructions that I was given, and I, I did, I looked up, it's the first time I'd seen the galaxy from the south, and it was absolutely spectacular. What happened to me? in looking up at this bright galaxy, and I think it just happened because it was bright enough, it was a psychological effect, that the world around me fell away. It was like standing on a tiny asteroid. I was surrounded by a galaxy. You really felt like you were in the Milky Way galaxy. I, I was in the Milky Way. I was hanging alone in outer space and the Earth didn't exist, it was only this immense galaxy hanging over me. It was even better than that because I had a feeling of depth perception. There are dust clouds in the galaxy, and when they're in the foreground, they look black, and when they're far away, they tend to be filled in by stars in the front. It's kind of like looking at mountains in the distance. The one in the foreground is is vivid, and the one that's far away looks sort of hazy. So you get actual depth just from the perception of color. And that's exactly what happened to me here. I could see that there were dust clouds in the foreground. There were dust clouds farther away, trailing all the way off to the center of this galaxy. So as though you were experiencing the Milky Way in 3D for the first time. That was the amazing thing. I, I experienced the Milky Way in 3D. That's right.
1: How important is that experience to a scientist when they go back to their lab and they start asking those big questions again, having an an experience
4: like that? Does it change how you do your science? I don't think it changed the way I did my science. What it changed was it was certainly the closest I've come to a spiritual experience in my life. And it gave me pause. It made me think more deeply. How did I get here? Do I belong here? And I've really come to, it's not a religious belief by any means, but it's a feeling of comfort. I truly believe that we are the children of this universe. We belong here. I've now, since then, come to believe that there are other universes, and very hostile ones in which we probably couldn't even begin to exist, just like planets, you know? So I, I began to think about our galaxy the way I think about Mother Earth, and By extension, I think about our universe as our mother universe.
1: What if we could answer all these questions, all these great big questions, and you had to switch to another career? You had to switch.
4: It all ended tomorrow because all the questions had been answered. What would you do? I've often asked myself what I would do if I weren't an astronomer, and I I have two careers that intrigue me. Neither one of them, unfortunately, is good as the one I'm in. <laughs> one of them is being a forensic scientist, because I think astronomy is a lot like forensic science in the sense that we're both detectives and we try to figure out what went on at the scene of the crime from a few little leftover clues left over afterwards. The other answer might surprise you a little bit, I think I'd try to design water fountains.
1: Is there any connection or is it just you've always loved water fountains?
4: I I just think they're interesting. (laughs) They're beautiful.
1: (laughs) Sandy Faber, thank you so much for talking to us.
4: It's been my pleasure.
2: Sandra Faber is Chair of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of California, Santa Cruz. The recipient of numerous honors for her research, she was most recently awarded the 2011 Henry Norris Russell Lectureship, the highest accolade given by the American Astronomical Society. Sandy currently leads an ambitious project called the Candles Survey that uses the Hubble Space Telescope to image more than 250,000 distant galaxies. Find a link to it on our website, along with her favorite Hubble image, the Pillars of Creation, on our blog. So, Seth, what is your favorite Hubble image? Well, Pillars of Creation was on the sides of buses for years, so that is a good one. But I actually, yeah, I like the ones of galaxies, but I'm a kind of a galaxy guy. You know, and to see these galaxies pictured in a way that even 20 years ago was impossible, it's just stunning, just stunning.
1: Well, Seth, you know there's a lot of action in those distant galaxies.
2: Yep, and there's one particularly dramatic event we hope will remain as distant as possible. After all, it could ruin your whole day if it happened close by. These particular drama queens are called Gamma-ray bursts.
1: Now, gamma rays are the highest energy form of light, and gamma-ray bursts are cosmic events that produce these rays. Gamma-ray bursts are the biggest explosions since the Big Bang, according to University of California Berkeley astronomer Daniel Perley.
2: Dan, gamma-ray bursts. I mean, the name sounds somewhat self-explanatory, but tell me what one of these things looks like. What, what does a gamma-ray burst look like?
5: Well, it doesn't look like very much if you look at just an image. These things are coming from very far away, and they don't last very long. If you were to sort of take a picture, first of all, most of the energy comes out in gamma rays, which, of course, we can't see. A little bit of light comes out in the optical, especially later times. But even if you did that, all you would sort of see is a point of light because it's too far away to resolve it in any sort of structure with any current technologies.
2: Would you typify a gamma ray burst as maybe the mother of all explosive events?
5: Yeah, these are explosions coming from the farthest corners of the universe lasting for a few seconds and then fading away. And certainly compared to any other phenomenon like flares from stars in our own galaxy or even supernovae, they're the biggest and the brightest uh, of anything that we see.
2: Now, we didn't know about gamma-ray bursts just a few decades ago. I think that the discovery of these things was a bit unusual, somewhat like the discovery of penicillin or X-rays, somewhat of an accident.
5: Yeah, gamma-ray bursts are sort of a classic example of a serendipitous discovery in science and in astronomy. They were actually discovered by a military program, the Vela Programme, a fleet of satellites that was launched actually to look for nuclear tests. After the nuclear test ban treaty was signed in the 60s, one of the things that people were concerned about was what if the Soviets tried to set off nuclear explosions in space. About The only way that you'd be able to recognize that was by their gamma rays. So they sent up satellites to look for gamma rays, and they detected some explosions, but they weren't coming from anywhere near the Earth. They were coming from very far away. And within a few years, they'd figured out that this is some sort of strange, unknown astrophysical.
2: Now, these things are coming from other galaxies and not even nearby galaxies in general.
5: Yeah, most of them come from very distant galaxies, billions of light-years away. The typical gamma-ray burst comes from, you know, something like 9 or 10 billion light-years.
2: Has any gamma-ray burst ever gone off in the uh, Milky Way galaxy, our galaxy, during uh, the period of time we've been studying these things?
5: Certainly not any traditional gamma-ray burst. Uh, It depends a little bit on what you call a gamma-ray burst. Because it is sort of prosaic name, you can can pretty much call anything that emits lots of gamma-rays really fast in a short amount of time a gamma-ray burst. And of these gigantic explosions that we're talking about that are as energetic or more than supernova, certainly we haven't seen anything like that in our galaxy in a human lifetime.
2: Well, Dan, what I don't understand, these things go off. They're they're bright for a few seconds, maybe a few minutes, and then they disappear, and you're not going to see another one in that galaxy for maybe 100 million years or something. So how can you possibly study these things if they're so infrequent and so far away? Isn't that a bit like trying to study white rhinos? I mean, if you don't see them very often, how can you learn anything?
5: Yeah, well, it's definitely part of the challenge. Fortunately, although they're certainly extremely rare per galaxy, this is kind of made up a little bit by the fact that they're just so bright that we can see them almost no matter how far away they are. And the universe is a big place. There's a whole lot of galaxies within 9 billion light years, and so actually we detect one every few days. And so with these satellites having been in orbit detecting these things for a couple of decades now, we've got quite the library of gamma-ray bursts to study.
2: Okay, Daniel, the big question. The name of these things, gamma-ray bursts, That's merely a description of what we see. So that's a bit like calling lightning a a big white zigzag in the sky. It doesn't tell you what lightning is. Do we know what the gamma-ray bursts really are caused by?
5: Well, some of the details are still uncertain, and there's at least a couple of different types. But we think we know at least the basic story for the majority of the events that we detect. So we think most gamma-ray bursts are basically coming from the explosions of massive, gigantic stars at the end of their lives. So these are stars 20, 50 times the size of the Sun, they've run out of fuel on the inside, they can no longer support themselves, and the core basically collapses to a black hole. As matter falls down upon that black hole, some of that energy is directed back out into these jets of energy that erupt through the poles of the star, into interstellar space, and that's what creates the gamma ray burst, as this erupts through the
2: star. Okay, so these things don't radiate equally in all directions. They're not like a bare light bulb that, you know, puts light everywhere in the room. They're more like maybe a laser pointer producing a tight beam. Is that right?
5: Exactly. They're like, a, you know, a laser or a flashlight. And they don't actually have a whole lot more energy than an ordinary supernova. supernovae formed from the similar process of a massive star collapsing at the end of its life. What's different about gamma ray bursts is a whole lot of that energy is being focused into this beam of radiation. That makes it a whole lot brighter and visible a whole lot further away.
2: Can you give me some idea of what sort of energy we're talking about? I mean, the collapse of a star typically releases a great deal of energy. Maybe you could quantify great deal in this case.
5: Uh, It's a lot of energy. I mean, it's so much it's hard to put it in any sort of terrestrial terms, but it's comparable to if you took a big planet something like the size of Jupiter, and instantly turn it all into pure energy.
2: Well, somebody on Jupiter might object to that. I, I've read somewhere that the amount of energy that it produces in a few seconds is comparable to the, amount of, the total amount of energy produced by the Sun in its entire lifetime.
5: Yep, yep, that's, that's, that would be another good comparison.
2: All right, so what would happen if one of these gamma-ray bursts went off, say, a thousand light-years from Earth?
5: Well, that would be pretty bad news. A gamma-ray burst within the Milky Way... If its jet is pointed at us, if the jet is not pointed at us, it won't do anything too unusual. But if it was jet was actually pointed at us, then the gamma-ray flux would be enormous, and it would actually, well, it wouldn't exactly, you know, fry the planet or anything completely extreme like that. It would cause some significant chemical changes in the atmosphere, probably mess up the ozone layer and do other things that would cause some sort of mass extinction.
2: But there's nothing we could do to forestall the evil effects of these things. If, if one were to go off, I mean, you don't get any advance warning, right?
5: No, gamma-ray bursts are basically totally random, at least when they appear in distant galaxies. Now, within our own galaxy... We have some idea of the kind of stars that probably make gamma ray bursts. They're these huge, very massive stars that are at the very end of their lives and consistent with the picture that they're about to explode. We sort of know what those stars are, at least within our, you know, our neighborhood in the Milky Way. So we, we know if there a gamma ray burst were to, were to happen, the kinds of, the kind of stars that would make it. And there aren't really any clear candidates within our own galaxy of something that would definitely going to produce a gamma ray burst in the near future.
2: All right. Sounds like something I don't need to worry about immediately. Finally, Dan, you're making a living learning about the biggest explosions nature has to offer, it seems, shy of the Big Bang itself. Do you still jump out of bed in the morning eager to get to work?
5: Uh, Not only that, I jump out of bed in the middle of the night because when one of these things goes off, I get an alert and have to sit up and start calling people to try to get data on it. But even aside from that, it's an exciting field to work with for sure.
2: Daniel Purley, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you.
1: Someone for whom big, explosive ideas are nothing new, Daniel Purley ponders them as an astronomer at the University of California at Berkeley.
2: Coming up, big stuff requires big telescopes. And here's a huge puzzler. Why is most of the universe missing? It's big, really big, on Are We Alone? Okay, it's been 400 years since Galileo Galilei amused evening strollers in Padua by showing them the moons of Jupiter through his telescope. Travel halfway around the world from Italy to Hawaii. Today, the Keck telescope, which is actually two instruments sitting on top of Hawaii's Mauna Kea volcanic cone, has optics that collect 300,000 times as much light as Galileo's instrument,
1: quite an improvement. And you might think that, like cars or hamburgers, telescopes have gotten just about as big as they ought to be. But it's not true. Astronomers seem to have an endless faith in the maxim that bigger is better. Seth talked to Caltech physicist Ed Stone about the gargantuan telescopes that will be used by the next generation of astronomers. That is to say, scopes that are bigger than the already large Keck telescope.
2: Now, Ed Stone knows something about thinking big. He headed up the effort in the 1970s to send the two Voyager probes to the distant realms of our solar system.
1: And aside from being big, one of the advantages of Keck is that it can measure not just the visible light coming from space, but the infrared.
0: Well, the two Keck telescopes are the largest optical infrared telescopes, 10 meter mirrors, and that allows them to do very accurate analysis of the spectrum of objects. And it's by looking at their colors, the spectrum, that one can determine what these objects are. And you need a lot of light in order to do that. So you need very large mirrors.
2: You also have them on the top of Mauna Kea there in Hawaii, uh, presumably not for the view or the cuisine, but that's a consequence of them operating in the infrared?
0: Yes. The top of Mauna Kea is one of the best sites in the world. First of all, it's very high. It's in the middle of the ocean, so the atmosphere as it flows over Mauna Kea is less disturbed, and that means the imaging is much sharper. So that also improves the quality of the data that we can get on the top of the mountain.
2: Keck has been enormously successful. You read about its discoveries, for example, extrasolar planets all the time in the papers. If you were to look back on what Keck has done so far, what are the highlights for you?
0: Well, one of the most interesting things, of course, are all the planets, which Keck has been able to discover by measuring very accurately the motion of the star as the planet orbits the star. And because of our large collecting power, we can make those measurements very accurately. Another very important thing is it's been possible to determine the motion of stars around the center of our own galaxy and to demonstrate that the stars are in orbit around an unseen object, a black hole, which has the mass of about 4 million suns. and That can be determined because one can see the stars moving very rapidly as they orbit this very massive black hole at the center of our own galaxy.
2: All right. Two telescopes, each 10-meter diameter mirrors. That would impress your neighbors if you had that in your backyard. But we need something larger. Ed, have you spent a lot of time on the top of Mauna Kea yourself?
0: I've been to Mauna Kea many times. I have never stayed there overnight, but I've been there many times because I began working on the Keck telescopes back in 1984 and oversaw their construction and their operation for about 25 years. So I've been there many times. It is very high. When I'm up there, it reminds me a lot of what Mars looks like. It's a red cinder cone area with nothing growing. It's always just above freezing and occasionally snows.
2: <laughs> it, well, it may remind you of Mars except for that giant liquid ocean in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that part might be a little bit different. And since you're there at Caltech, tell us very briefly about the 30-meter telescope project. How has that benefited from the Keck telescope efforts, and indeed, what can it do that Keck cannot do?
0: Well, the two Keck telescopes are the first telescopes to use a segmented primary mirror. That is, instead of a single piece of glass 10 meters or 33 feet across, those two telescopes each have 36 segments, each about 6 feet across, which are like tiles, hexagonal tiles, to create this large mirror. In order to look back in time, you have to look far from the Earth. Go back 13 billion light years away from the Earth, and you're looking back 13 billion years in time. The price you pay for that is these are very dim objects, and in order to analyze them, we need to have enough light to make a spectrum. And even the Keck telescopes, with their 10-meter mirrors, the largest on Earth, are not big enough to really extend our vision back to the first stars. And that's what the 30-meter telescope will do. It will be built with the same segmented mirror technology to create a mirror which is 98 feet across, 30 meters across.
2: Well, one might naively think, oh, well, those astronomers, they always want a bigger telescope. And, you know, to some extent that's true. But on the other hand, maybe there's a certain size at which point you can learn some of the most fundamental secrets of the cosmos, maybe even come to the, I don't know, the end of physics, the end of astronomy. I don't know if that'll ever happen, but do you think the 30-meter telescope is in that class? Could it be maybe the biggest
0: telescope we'll ever need here on Earth? Once you get to about 30 meters, one will be able to look back to the first stars. That is, look far enough away that you're looking back to when the first stars developed. And so in that sense, yes, in the next generation of telescopes, I think, will take us back in time to the very beginning of starlight. Now, of course, even before that, there's the cosmic microwave background, which is being studied. But the first starlight will be available, I think, will be detectable and analyzable by these next-generation telescopes. It's an exciting
2: time to be an astronomer. These are very big telescopes. They're here on the ground. If I were a member of the public, I would say, why aren't we putting these things in space? The Hubble telescope's in space. It, it makes fantastic pictures. It can see detail that uh, even larger telescopes can't see here on the ground. Why
0: don't we put something like the Keck or the 30-meter telescope into space? There are plans, of course, to put a larger telescope in space. That's the James Webb Space Telescope. It will be a 6 and a half meter mirror, uh, and, of course, it will collect light, but it will not collect as much light as a 30-meter mirror. And that means that it will be more difficult to do spectral analysis, where you have to spread the light out into its colors. It will be a great challenge even to put a a 6.5-meter mirror into space. Uh, So the advantage of ground-based is that you can build larger mirrors on the ground at an affordable way. The challenge always has been how to take out the atmospheric blurring and we with the Keck's now use adaptive optics and we create our own laser guide star so that we can measure the atmosphere hundreds of times a second and correct for the perturbations of the atmosphere and it turns out that the Keck telescopes now on the top of Mauna Kea have the same angular resolution as the Hubble telescope has in space. In other words, what you're doing is you're
2: just 100 times a second, you're kind of bending the mirror of the telescope here on the ground. You're adjusting it to uh, take out the twinkling effects of the atmosphere.
0: That's right, and this is a very powerful technique. The net result is if you go from a 10-meter mirror to a 30-meter mirror, that's nine times more area for mirror, nine times more light. But it also means the light is focused into a spot of one-ninth the area on your detector, resulting in a factor of 81 in sensitivity. Sounds like a good thing to do. Ed Stone, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you.
1: Ed Stone is the former director of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and a physicist at the California Institute of Technology. He led the effort in the 1970s to send two Voyager probes to the farthest reaches of the solar system. Well, Seth, we've dealt with big objects, big events, and big telescopes. So now, what about the big question? What is the universe made of?
2: Right, the 4% problem. That's the fraction of the universe that we can identify, the fraction where we can answer your question, Molly. The remaining 96%, we don't know. Our best guess, invisible stuff called dark matter and weird stuff called dark energy. But we simply don't know what all that stuff is. 4%
1: is science writer Richard Panik's book about why ordinary matter and light, the stuff we deal with every day, are but a smidgen of insignificant foam on the vast ocean of the universe. How did we come to lose or discover that we'd lost most of the universe?
6: Well, starting in the 1970s or so, astronomers began to notice that the motions of galaxies, either individually or working together, weren't making sense just using what we could see, and Newton's laws of gravitation, that they were spinning, the galaxies were spinning too fast for their own good. If they were really spinning at the rates that we're seeing them spin at, they should be shedding stars and gas in every direction. And that includes our own galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy.
2: Okay, so this was a puzzling discovery, and it took place over a fairly long period of time. Somebody must have suggested why this could be true other than to say, well, you know, my colleagues' measurements are wrong. I mean, what what, what were they saying?
6: Well, as far back as the 1930s, the astronomer Fritz Vicky was noticing this behavior in a galaxy cluster. And he said that there might be something called Dunkelmaterie, which is dark matter. But everybody kind of forgot about that until the 1970s, when the observations became much more precise and much more elaborate. And astronomers noticed again and again and again and again that this single fact, seem to be applying throughout the universe.
2: Okay. Now, Fritz Zwicky's dark matter. I mean, when you say it's dark, all that means is that whatever it is, we can't see it. That's all that dark matter means, right?
6: It does. But, you know, there are many things that we can't see. We can't see x-rays. We can't see microwaves. We can't, you know. But this is something that we can't see in any part of the electromagnetic spectrum. So it's not just that we can't see it with our eyes. We can't see it anywhere, x-rays, radio waves, anything like that.
2: But we knew it was there because it was speeding up the the stars in the outer regions of galaxies.
6: Well, it would actually be far bigger than the galaxies, much, much bigger than the galaxies, so that the galaxy itself rotating would just be a small part of all the material that's out there, this matter that we can see and we know what it's made of, uh, the stars and the gas, and then all this other mystery matter.
2: So there was clearly something there. Right. It wasn't something that sounded very prosaic on the basis of the observations they had. What about the possibility that, well, maybe, you know, Newton was wrong?
6: That's always a possibility. And people have certainly been considering that since the early 1980s. And because they haven't found dark matter, they haven't identified it, that still is a possibility. But there are other observations that seem to be ruling out that possibility.
2: So it isn't that we had the physics
6: wrong. Apparently not. But, you know, science goes in mysterious ways and you can't rule it out.
2: Okay, so it was a big surprise, this dark matter, that there was this constituent of the universe that added up to more than all the stars and galaxies uh, that we hadn't known about. Um, But they seem to be okay with this idea now. They're not going nonlinear about dark matter. You don't see them pulling out what's left of their hair um, <laughs> because it does help us understand something like how galaxies form. I mean, you start with a bunch of dark matter and the other stuff sort of falls. Right. To and well.
6: it also when you map the universe on a large enough scale, you can see that galaxies are clustering in certain areas and that they're super clusters and that would conform to a dark matter model. That because there's so much more matter there than we can see, that's where all the clumping is going on. What what, what are the best theories for what dark matter might be? Well, there are two hypothetical particles. One is called a neutralino, and the other is called the axion. They're hypothetical. They fall out of something called the standard model of particle physics. They've been looking for them since the 1970s. If they did exist, according to the theory, they would exist at the right individual mass and in the right quantity that when you multiply the two, the whole overall quantity of all of these particles times the individual mass of each particle. It would actually make up the dark matter component of the universe. The problem is that they haven't found either of these yet.
2: Any hope for the Large Hadron Collider finding
6: the dark matter particle? It's possible that it could create it, and people are hopeful.
2: Okay, And, and do you think if they do that it would still be called dark matter? I mean, you know after all we don't call neutrinos dark even right. though you can't see them.
6: That's true. Uh, so dark in the sense, really, it's a rhetorical placeholder. It's something until we know more about it, and then they will call it Neutralinos. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, that, that just trips right off my tongue. Well. I have to say neutralinos. <laughs> well, dark matter, that's great, but it's now running in second place, it seems to me, to something that's even more important, constitutes even a greater share of the invisible universe, if you will. T- tell me about what we found recently.
6: Well, in the 1990s, two teams of astronomers were racing each other, actually, to try to find out what the fate of the universe would be. Now that they knew that there was all this matter and all this dark matter in the universe, the question was, in a universe that's expanding over time, was there so much matter interacting gravitationally with all the other matter that eventually the universe, the expansion of the universe, would slow, come to a stop, and collapse, a big crunch, they called it. Or was there just not enough of this matter and it would just kind of peter out, the big chill, they called it. What they found instead was that the expansion of the universe seemed to be speeding up rather than slowing down.
2: Okay, so, I mean, just very naively... Thinking high school physics, you've got mm-hmm. all these galaxies out there; they're rushing apart and all. But on the other hand, they're pulling on one another by their mutual gravity, right. and and consequently, you would expect that this, you know, this exploding universe, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, this creation of new space all the time, would slow down and you know maybe come to a stop, maybe not, but it would at least slow down. But it wasn't slowing down, so something was on the accelerator pedal, right? Uh, and mm-hmm. we call that uh, dark, dark energy. Dark energy. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I have to say several guests on this program have mm-hmm. talked about dark energy and you know one thing they do seem to have in common is none of them seems to know what it is well
6: yes that's that's a, that's absolutely right you know we were talking about dark matter and there are these two candidate particles that i mentioned the neutralino and the axion so in the case of dark matter they're trying to figure out what it is in the case of dark energy they're still trying to figure out how it behaves they're trying to see is it constant over space and time, or does it change over space and time? So it's a whole other kind of question here, before they can even get down to the question of what is it. They yeah. just want to know what it's like.
2: Yeah, what, how it behaves. I mean, yeah. because there's some possibility that if it's strong enough, uh, it you know might really blow apart the universe in a fairly short period of time from now, the big rip or whatever.
6: Right, right. And that depa- I mean, if it's changing over space and time, then really all bets are off. If it's constant over space and time, then we kind of know that the universe will just, it'll keep accelerating, but it won't blow apart if you will.
2: Now one of the more interesting things in your book is the the description of how dark energy was actually discovered because it wasn't just a group of guys, you know, working mm. at one place mm-hmm. that uh, you know some researchers who who discovered dark energy there was actually a, a bit of a competition here.
6: Right. Well, earlier I referred to them as two teams of astronomers, but actually to be more accurate, one was a team of physicists out of Berkeley Labs. And the other was a group of astronomers that were mostly based at Harvard, but also in Chile and in Australia. And the astronomers kind of resented the physicists for stepping on their turf, and the physicists resented the astronomers because the physicists said that they started their search first. And who were these people coming in and trying to take the glory from them? So there were these two conflicting sides. Now, as far as I know, the details of this race, of this uh, rivalry, uh, have never really appeared in a book before. But I think enough time has passed that the people who are involved were, were ready to I would say open up, but probably uh, the better description would be unload.
2: (laughs) Well, I I take it that there was quite a bit. The emotions ran high.
6: uh, Yes, they did.
2: (laughs) And and did they know you were writing a book about it and including, you know, comments from the other side?
6: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, so this took place in the 1990s, but the research I was doing was in the last five years or so. But enough time has passed that there's some question among the two groups. Who's really getting the credit and is the credit being apportioned fairly? So they each saw a certain advantage in talking to me and trying to get the record straight. So what I had to do, and I thought I can't arbitrate here, but it finally occurred to me one day that what I could do is represent each side's point of view. So in the book, I alternate points of view. So if I'm dealing with the Berkeley team, I'm showing the opposition from their point of view and vice versa.
2: I see. Okay. And uh, <laughs> it's, not, it's not clear to you which should be the winner then.
6: No, it's very, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's about as articulate as an answer as you're going to get. <laughs> <laughs> now, this rivalry paid dividends for these two teams. Now, remember that they were both thought that they were trying to figure out how much the universe is slowing down. And instead, they come up with this totally counterintuitive answer that they didn't expect to get. The fact that they were two rival teams... Coming up with the same unexpected answer is part of what made the cosmological community, the physicists and the astronomers and the astrophysicists take this seriously. Because they said, if these two teams can agree on something this wild, then maybe there's something D- to there's it.
2: There's something to it. It's not just uh, one group's uh, conclusion. Right. Uh, well, that's, that's fantastic. And uh, finally, uh, mm-hmm. Richard, have uh, both teams been satisfied with your rendition of their stories?
6: There have been some emails. <laughs> <laughs> But on on the whole, yes, they, they, they actually have been. They, they recognized that I was trying to represent both sides' points of view. And so while they might not like the way the other side was depicting them, they they recognized that it was fair and accurate.
2: Fantastic. Richard Panic. thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. Me. It
6: was great being here.
1: Richard Panik looks for impartiality as the author of The 4% Universe.
2: Well, Molly, it seems that this show is 96% over.
1: But we want to give thanks to those who give 110%, Barbara Vance, Gary Niederhoff, and Jay Weiler.
2: Also, thanks to the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute, where our show is produced. And Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David for their support. And, of course, to you, the listeners.
1: If you'd like to comment on the show, please visit our blog on our website or navigate your way to our Facebook page. That
2: would be mighty big of you.
1: So, Seth, are you still considering that round-the-world cruise?
2: Well, I don't know. Maybe I'll just cruise to Bermuda from Florida. I mean, that's about 4% of the way around the world, and I could afford it.
1: In that case, a lot of the world would be left for you to discover.
6: Now you can have Are We Alone at your fingertips. Just download our groovy new app for your iPhone or Android. Stream our latest shows and get bonus interviews and other content to boot. Looking for something to impress friends and visitors? Check out the MoMA gift shop. Or go to the SETI store at SETIstore.org and pick up an Are We Alone mug. Good for holding liquids. And pens. Also, remember we appreciate your comments on iTunes. Keep them coming.